please remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. I will be reading it in German. The English text is on the screen. Urteilt nicht über andere, damit Gott euch nicht verurteilt. Denn so wie ihr jetzt andere richtet, werdet auch ihr gerichtet werden. Und mit dem Maßstab, den ihr an andere anlegt, werdet ihr selbst gemessen werden. Warum siehst du jeden kleinen Splitter im Augen deines Mitmenschen, aber den Balken in deinem Augen bemerkst du nicht? Wie kannst du zu ihm sagen, komm her, ich will dir den Splitter aus dem Auge ziehen und dabei hast du selbst einen Balken in Auge. Du Heuliger, entfernte zuerst den Balken aus deinem Auge, dann kannst du klar sehen, um auch den Splitter aus dem Auge deines Mitmenschen zu ziehen. Werft, was ist heilig, nicht den Hunden hin. Sie werden euch angreifen und in Stücke reißen. Und werft eure Perlen nicht vor die Säue. Sie werden die Perlen nur zertreten. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, it's good to see you. A reminder to parents as you're taking your kids to Children's Church to pick them up either right before or right after you take communion. One of the things I've been uh, trying to do here as something that's new is to highlight what the kids are learning as they're going off to Children's Church. Right now, they're looking at some stories from Scripture about what it means to turn from idolatry to loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. One of the tools we use in, um, for adults and for kids is a catechism called the New City Catechism. So they ask this question, what is idolatry? And let's go ahead and say the answer together. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator. And that's something that they're learning because there's countless stories in the scriptures that talk about that. And that's some of the things that the kids are learning uh, today. As many of you know, uh, Twin Cities Marathon is going on today. There's some folks from Trinity that are participating in that, uh, both today and yesterday. Somebody even said uh, to me that they did something called the fun run, which I think is just the worst adjective to describe running. I'm clearly not in the Twin Cities Marathon. It's not something that I'm not into, and maybe you're going to say in light of today's sermon, who are you to judge? Uh, whether somebody should like that or not. And all I'm going to say is if you go down to the summit where the folks are running through that street, just look and observe their faces and tell me, do they look like they're having fun? Okay, and then tell me if that's the right way, a right name for the fun run, all right? As I hinted at, we're looking at a verse today about, a famous verse about uh, Jesus teaching to be careful how we judge. Do not judge is the verse that's very, very popular that you may have heard before. It's a part of a series we're in right now called Out of Context. We're looking at various uh, verses in the scriptures that are commonly misunderstood or misapplied 
And the point of it is not to make us uh, ashamed or to make us uh, like, I don't want to interpret Scripture anymore, I, I might mess it up. That's not the point. The point is to really teach us how to look at Scripture in context, to see the beauty of Scripture when we understand the verse in context, and, and to be able to uh, see Jesus uh, through uh, that task. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, um, the verse that's commonly taken out of context. Do not judge, but before we do, do that, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful, Lord, for this place and these people that we can come here and we can focus on Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and all the implications, all that means for us today including, Lord, as we continue to lean in to his teachings and his word. His word is for us and to us, and it's for our good. His word is full of grace and truth, Lord. We want that to rule over us and to help us to live lives of, of love towards you and love towards others. So, Lord, help us to understand how to do that in light of holding one another accountable um, according to your truth and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So don't judge me. That's maybe a phrase that even if they're not quoting this specific verse that you may have heard from others, maybe you've said it to somebody else to kind of get somebody to lay off their criticism of you a little bit. This is a very, very popular verse to take out of context. It's probably in the series that we're preaching through, probably one of the most popular and common verses to take out of context because people love to use this verse as a way to justify their own moral autonomy. This understanding of the verse this way, it's a way to kind of brush off accountability to justify your own sin and to tell other people to lay off. But I think it also speaks to a common human experience of why we take this verse out of context because I think it's a common experience not to receive accountability or judgment well, not to give it, to worry, like, do I need to get my own life together in order to give people accountability, to say something that's true and, uh, and honest and just, but maybe I struggle with that thing too? Like, how do we live lives of accountability and judgment and grace? Let me give you an example from, from my own household about this struggle, uh, about holding others accountable, wondering if you have uh, the same sins that you're struggling with, the same struggles as other people, and whether you should just be quieter or say something, right? So I remember uh, picking up uh, my, my kids and a group of their friends, as I often do, uh, going into the weekend, and one of my uh, kids' classmates was talking about a short paper she was writing, and the thesis statement was essentially that uh, parents love to say that kids have a problem with screen time, but the reality is that parents have a struggle with screen time, so much so that it's affecting kids because they look at their parents and they're on their phone, and so that means they're not paying attention to them, the kid that's in front of them, and so really part of the struggle is to be blamed on parents, and I remember her describing this uh, thesis to me, and I was just like, I don't buy it. There's no way. Gen, Gen Z is way worse than this than millennials. Like, there's, I just don't buy it. I don't pick it up. Fast forward one week later, and we're here in the sanctuary, and uh, Christian Roth was here last week, a, a Swedish pastor who's planting a church in Copenhagen, and I got the uh, honor of introducing him. But before he went up and preached, uh, I saw that my kids are texting me. I got two text messages. One was, Dad, you're on your phone. And uh, the other one was a picture of me. 
You see that? I'm on, I'm on my phone. <laughs> just, just for some evidence, right? Now, to be fair, in this situation, I texted back during church, uh, texted back a screenshot because of what I was actually doing. I wasn't on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. I was jotting down some notes quickly uh, for Christian's introduction. And I remember thinking about this, this story as I was prepping the sermon and, and kind of all these themes uh, interlocked together. But then I actually remembered another time where I was busted for not being engaged in real life with my family. Here's a picture from weeks earlier. I, this is me state fair with my family, right? And my wife takes a little picture of me, sends it to me, uh, and says, you've been on your phone a lot. So now I'm rewinding and thinking about my, uh, my daughter's friend's thesis, and maybe she has a point. But everything in you, when you get called out on something like this, especially if you're the one that's like at home and you're the enforcer about screen time, which is kind of my role, you're on the screen too much, Get off, get off your screen, and you're like, you could even have like, a, you're, you'd be willing to throw down on a screen competition, like, who really is on their screens more? But these things are kind of a reminder of like, when you're holding somebody else accountable for something, they're watching you at the same time. And then it starts to raise these questions. Should I have not said anything? Because sometimes I'm on the screen instead of being in, in, in real life and being engaged. So that means I should never say anything about it if somebody else is doing the same thing. And all these questions start to rise out of a verse like this. And maybe, what do we do? We just say, don't judge me, stop judging me and move on? Or is there something more holistic that we can do to hold one another accountable with grace and truth? So that's what we're going to look at today. Verse uh, chapter 7, verse 1, but not only verse 1, but the whole context of this famous verse, do not judge. What does Jesus want us to know about judgment of one another in light of God and who he is? What does he want us to know about gospel-centered accountability? So let's look at the context. Chapter 7 of uh, the Gospel of Matthew takes place in a larger sermon called the Sermon of the Mount, one of the most famous sermons in all of history that Jesus preached. Jesus is teaching in his sermon on the mount what it means to follow him. He's telling his disciples this is what the Christian life looks like and what they will face as disciples of his. And one challenge that they face is that religious leaders have been teaching them dysfunctional things about faith throughout their whole life. And so in this sermon, Jesus is teaching his followers what a true fulfillment of scripture looks like and the calling on the Christian life in light of the truth of God's word. And in the process, he's calling out these religious leaders for being hypocrites and for placing uh, burdens of teachings on God's people that are too heavy to bear that they themselves will not put on their own shoulders. The religious leaders, Jesus says, are hypocrites. And he says this throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you're hypocrites because what you love to do is you love to advertise how wonderful your religious works are. When you donate, when you pray, when you fast, you love to not just do them, but you want others to see that you are doing them. He says that they're hypocrites. They announce their religious works all the time and make sure that other people know how pious they are. And outside, the religious leaders look great but inside their hearts are far from God. In Matthew 23, especially, Jesus really confronts these religious leaders and repeats this phrase like, woe to you, woe to you, which is this old school word that's like expressing that doom and judgment are coming on you. 
Why, are, why is doom and judgment coming to these religious leaders? Because they make teachings and rules that are closing the door to God's kingdom to other people. It's because they obsess about some parts of God's law, like tithing, but they're neglecting other parts, such as justice, mercy, and faithfulness. It's because they're making followers of them that he says, quote, are twice as much a child of hell as you are. So Jesus was doing some serious confronting of these religious leaders. And so these disciples that he has, that's the teaching they've been hearing throughout their lives is this undue burden, is closing the kingdom of God. It's this, this, this culture that they've been in and this experience that they've been in their entire life that's been pushing them away from the kingdom of God and putting extra burdens on them. And now Jesus is about to undo all that point them back to the light and build back up their life with the gospel. So that's what's going on in Matthew 7. So now we get to uh, the verse at hand, and Jesus is about to reform his disciples' understanding about the standard of judgment that they should have towards others and also how to avoid a life of hypocrisy. So first, Jesus tells his disciples to assess your standard of judgment, verses 1 through 2. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So verse 1 is a warning. He says, be careful judging others, because you're going to be judged too. And in what manner are we all going to be judged? We will be judged by the same standards, Jesus says, that we apply to others. So if your standards are too high for others, then the standards applied to you will also be that high. And as I said in the opening illustration, there's a sense that that happens in our human relationships, that if we are applying standards to others, then it sticks out if we're breaking those standards. So if the standards are high, then it's going to be impossible for us, too, to reach those standards. But being more true than this happening in relationships, our human relationships, so it's really terrifying to think is God using the standard of judgment that we use for other people or ourselves. That's terrifying to think of. That God would use the same standard of judgment that you use for others and maybe yourself. Because often the human experience is that our standards for ourselves and for others is way too high. James 2.13 makes a similar point. James writes, Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. We often pass judgment on to people without mercy. And imagine if God judged us without mercy. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to ponder. Now the goal, therefore, is not to lower our standards. What we want is accurate standards and ones that mirror the very heart of God, full of grace and truth, as well as merciful judgment. So it raises the questions that we should all ask is, what are the expectations that you place on yourself and others? What are they? Sometimes we have these expectations of ourselves and others that, that are just ridiculously high. How do you expect people, for example, to respond to your time of need if you're going through a season of suffering? Are your expectations for others way too high? A burden that you yourself couldn't bear if you were trying to lead a friend through a time of suffering and need? What are the expectations you have for a church community? Is it something that nears perfection? Expectations of perfection for your brothers and sisters in Christ? What about the people you work with? These are types of questions that Jesus wants us to ponder 
What is the standard of judgment that you use for others and for yourself? And would you like that standard to be applied to you by God? And most of the time, the answer is absolutely not. I think I know I need more grace and mercy than that applied towards me, and therefore I should apply it to others. Now he goes on to illustrate his point and, and starts to focus in, in a little bit more on the reality of hypocrisy when it comes to holding other people accountable and judgment. He says in verse 3 through 5, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Again, this illustrate highlights hypocrisy about how human beings often judge one another. And the illustration is supposed to be ridiculous. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to get your attention. It's the, civil, it's the equivalent of like you're pointing out a small you know, speck of food in somebody's teeth, Meanwhile, it looks like you just demolished a row of Oreos in your mouth, right? It's that type of imagery, right? It's like pointing out like a small booger in somebody's nose, but meanwhile, you got every virus known to man running down your face. It's that type of illustration, but I would say it's even better. He says that there's a small speck of sawdust in your brother or sister in Christ's eye. You see it. Not only do you see it, you're obsessed about it. You can't stop thinking about it. You think about it all the time. You can't stop talking about it. When you have a conversation with your brother and sister in Christ, you bring it up because it bothers you. You can't stop talking about the speck. And when you talk to others about that person's speck, it's your topic that you love to go to about that sawdust, that speck of sawdust in your brother or sister in Christ's eye. So you keep bringing it up. And when you have nothing else to do, you make sure that you write about that speck you want other people to know about it? Or you go deep into the comments of social media to see if you can spot that speck so you can call it out again and talk about it? This is a human tendency. We do it all the time. We love to obsess about that speck of sawdust and point it out and make sure other people see it and even try to investigate to see if we can see it in other parts of the world. So Jesus is saying, while you're doing that, while you're trying to identify this problem in other people, Meanwhile, you got the equivalent of a two-by-four sticking out of your eye. That's the, that's the illustration, right? And he says, you hypocrites, no wonder you can't see well enough to hold people accountable in a gracious and truthful manner. You can't see anything. Look at you. It looks like you went to Home Depot and the lumber yard fell on your face and you're obsessed about a speck of sawdust in other people's eyes. That's what he's getting at. It's ridiculous. It's, it's hypocrisy illustrated in such a vivid way. So it's addressing the person who wants everyone else to confess their sin, but they never confess their own. Rather, they hide it or deny it. It's the person who's quick to condemn the actions of others while they're doing the very same thing, or as the illustration is saying, much worse. It's the person who constantly calls for generosity but lives a life of greed. It's the person who expects others to keep a secret, but then they gossip all the time. And again, the entire purpose of this illustration is driving home these two main points that he's making in his teaching. Jesus is saying, get sin out of your own life in order to see clearly uh, and, and, and enough to hold other people accountable. And two, stop using a standard of judgment 
on others that you don't even apply to yourself. So the goal now, as you establish these, these points, isn't then don't say anything, don't hold anybody accountable, don't ever judge anybody. The problem isn't that we don't judge people. The problem is, is how we do it. Jesus wants a life where we're holding one another accountable in truth and grace, but we have a problem and a tendency to do that as hypocrites and in a way that places undue burdens on other people. So what we want to do in true Christian communities, the goal of accountability is good, true, and gracious accountability, and that we practice it with one another in humility, repentance, and forgiveness. So in the second half of this message, I want to talk about that. What does accountability in a Christian context looks like? What does it look like if it's shaped by the gospel? Let's look at what the goal of accountability is. James 5, 19 through 20 James writes, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So in this context, judging someone in order to turn them back to the truth is a good thing. Jesus is preaching about a type of judgment or judgmentalism that's bad, but the scripture says, doesn't therefore go on to say never judge anybody, never pass judgment, never hold anybody accountable. In fact, it highlights the reverse, that accountability is a good thing, especially when the goal is, is you see somebody on a destructive pathway to their death because of their sins, and you say, get off that path, come back to this path of life and truth. And when you do that, when you restore somebody in that way, you are doing something that God is pleased with. So what kinds of things are we to turn people away from? Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul makes a list of sinful vices followed by a description of fruit in the Spirit. He says this in chapter 5, verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, and hatred, and discord, and jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things, there is no law. What do you do if you see somebody caught up in acts of the flesh? And what Paul uses that phrase to mean is the flesh is their, your sin nature, the, the part of you that, that's tempted and to flee from God and his love. So what do you see? What do you do when you see somebody that's caught up in the flesh? Well, Paul writes, you say something about it. You do something about it. And some of the things in the list, it's just like, yeah, I would probably say something about that if I had a friend, a brother, a sister in Christ that was doing something on this list. Like, for example, drunkenness, witchcraft, orgies. Yeah, probably should call some people out on that one, right? Like, come on, you probably, probably should stop the orgies and like, come on, get, get your life together, right? Those, those are very easy to see. Like, yes, hold people accountable for that. But did you notice some of the other things on the list? Some of these things are very difficult to hold people accountable for. Selfish ambition. When's the last time you held a brother and sister in Christ accountable for selfish ambition? 
that you came to that person and confronted that person with grace and love because they work way too much to the neglect of other people in their life and other responsibilities. That one's a little more difficult, isn't it? What about fits of rage? When's the last time that you had an intentional conversation with somebody because of how angry they get at their roommates, their spouse, or their kids? That's another one that's on the list, but we're called to do it. Or one final example from the list, envy. Have you ever spoken the truth to somebody because they constantly look at somebody else's life, their job, home, because that's what they want and that's what's going to make their life better, but you remind them that this discontentment that they always feel is what's going to satisfy their soul, even if they get those things. But that's what gospel-shaped accountability looks like. You see things that are happening in somebody's life that's destroying them, and you lovingly and graciously approach them in order to point them back to the truth and the life of God's ways. So the goal is not only to graciously hold one another accountable, but to point them back to these fruits of the Spirit, to go from rage to gentleness, from selfish ambition to self-control and faithfulness, from envy to joy is not just to say stop doing this, but to, to do this, to go on this path. And did you notice one of my favorite phrases that's used in that portion of Scripture is where, where Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, or peace and forbearance, and you know, all those things, etc. And then he says this phrase, against such things there is no law. I love that. There's so many things about like rules. Don't do that. Stop doing this. But, uh, but if, when it concerns like love and peace and joy and kindness, it's like, it's like pushing like a bowl of Skittles to a kid and be like, have as much as you want. No rules. Just go nuts. And that's what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's like there's, you don't hold back. Keep, keep loving. Keep, keep being a person of peace. Like go all in. And that's what we are called to do as the people of God is when people are on pathways that's moving away from a life of joy, peace, and love that we gently but with truth point them back to the fruits of the Spirit. And all the while that we're doing that, we must remember this. This is the next verse in Galatians 6.1. Paul writes this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves. Watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. And this is getting at the reality of what Jesus is saying about the life of hypocrisy. Often in, the, in our effort to hold others accountable, we're not careful to look at our own life and to realize that these struggles that our brothers and sisters in Christ have are things that can happen to me or maybe that I am actually struggling with. It reminds me of a quote from an 18th century theologian, his name is Jonathan Edwards, and he wrote these lists of like resolutions, things that he was committing his life to, and one of them sticks out because it says essentially the same thing. He wrote, quote, when I encounter sin in others, I will feel, at least in my own mind and heart, as if I had committed the same sins or had the same weaknesses or failings as others. I will use the knowledge of their failings to promote nothing but humility, even shame, in myself. I will use awareness of their sinfulness and weakness only as an occasion to confess my own sins and misery to God. In other words, when he sees the sins in others, he doesn't think more highly of himself. He holds his own heart, his own temptations to account by the standard of God's truth and love. 
But there's another reality, going back to Matthew 7, that Jesus addresses in this teaching, and it's the reality of what happens when you can continually confront somebody, but they not only reject it, but they turn on you. Matthew 7, 6, he addresses that, and this is a, the good news Bible translation, which I think puts it pretty clear what Jesus is teaching. He says, do not give what is holy to dogs. They will only turn and attack you. Do not throw your pearls in front of pigs. They will only trample them underfoot. Now, the illustration is, is easy enough to understand. Don't give good things to scavengers who are going to turn on you and attack you. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't waste your time on these pigs in Jewish law. They're unclean animals that will only trample that which is valuable that they're offering to you. So what's his point here? Why is he saying that in light of this teaching of don't judge and you got planks in your eye? And then he says this illustration. So we have to remember that Jesus' followers are to preach this gospel of repentance and grace to everyone. But what about those who consistently turn on you, seek, you, seek your harm, and want to only mock the gospel? Do you keep on trying to hold that person accountable? What about these in this situation, these religious hypocrites who refuse to consider the plank in their eyes and only respond by attacking others and trampling on the gospel of Jesus Christ. At some point, Jesus is saying, it's okay to move on. It's okay to move on and let that person be. Because Jesus knows how hard some hearts are, including the hypocrites that are probably listening to his Sermon on the Mount in this context. See, one of the things that we need to be shaped by when we talk about holding people accountable with truth and grace is we need to be shaped by God's generosity towards us rather than the dysfunctional ways that we approach our relationships with one another. This one thing that's clear in this section is that Jesus is teaching that people do not treat one another with graciousness and generosity. We don't. And often we don't treat ourselves with graciousness and generosity. So then Jesus teaches in verses 7 through 11 how God treats his people. He reminds us about God's generosity towards us. He says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So how does God respond to us when we ask? Well, when, he, when we ask and request good things, he gives. When we seek God and we find him, and the door doesn't stay shut. When we knock on that door, he opens it to us. That's his approachability, his generosity towards us. It's, it's this picture of prayer that Jesus is telling us that it's not just a one-and-done prayer. The, 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 the grammar being used here is in, in the present tense, meaning that there's a continuous action of seeking and asking and knocking. And as we're continually approaching God in prayer, his response to that is generosity. It's graciousness. It's love. That's how God responds to our prayer. And Jesus illustrates this response with uh, linking it and illustrating it with that of earthly parents, specifically fathers. And the two examples uh, seems like almost like a prank at first, right? I once heard about uh, parents 
uh, pranking their kids, right, where they like get their kids up on like President's Day or something like that and say, all right, it's time to go to school and they get all ready and they go out to the vehicle and they're about to go and they say, just kidding, like it's actually your day off and then they record it and post it on it because again, parents can't get off their phone, right? Uh, or like another one, this was like a late night host, right, did something where he he wanted people, wanted parents to send in videos of them waking up their small kids after Halloween and telling them that morning, oh, by the way, I ate all your candy, and just to film their, their freak out, right? Uh, and, and what Jesus is, is saying, he's, I mean, he's not saying don't prank your kids. I mean, it's one of the ways to get through parenthood. But he's, not, he's, just, he's kind of getting at this point, though, like, like in, in a, in a, even in, in a sinful parent's heart that still loves his kids, like, you don't do things that are spiteful. And you're a sinner, and you respond. Like, you, if they ask for bread, you don't give them, like, a rock that looks like a loaf of bread and say, hey, eat this if your kid is hungry and they need nourishment. Like, like, even sinful parents, he's saying, even sinful parents, most of the time know, like, you don't do that. If they're asking for a good gift, like food, because they're hungry, you give it. And that's the point he's making. If, if even sinful parents know that if the request is good and it should be responded with generosity and love and granting that gift, how much more your Father in heaven, who has no sin in him, wishes to give you generously that, that, you, that which you ask him, which is according to his will. And Jesus now wants us to be shaped more by the generosity of God and how we approach others than the sinfulness of how we often treat one another. And then Jesus, in verse 12, to, to wrap up this section, gets to his main point and to remind us, like, what is he getting at? How do we, how do we, how do we engage in Christian life of accountability and grace with one another? Well, he's saying, look to God who is ultimately gracious and generous, but also remember this, and this is another classic verse. He says, remember the golden rule. Verse 12, so in everything... Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. I have memories of growing up in, and growing up in church and my grandmother saying this first. And this is actually one that's not taken out of context. It's often used appropriately. The golden rule in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. That's the thing to remember when you approach your brothers and sisters in Christ in accountability and love. Do to them what you wish they would do to you. And conduct that action in light of God's generosity, in light of his love and mercy towards us. Love God and love others, or to sum up all of Scripture another way, do to others what you would have them do to you. So when we hold each other accountable, we have to remember that. Because we should be merciful. Because we need to receive mercy. We should hold other people accountable because don't you need accountability to turn off of passions of the flesh back to the fruits of the Spirit? We should call for other people to repent because we need others to do that to us. We need to be called out of our hypocrisy into repentance. We need to give forgiveness because we know, man, don't you need forgiveness? And that's how you don't judge others as you would have them judge yourself.